1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Please be seated. Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, is the truth, and Christians are called to know him. That's our sermon summary today. I'm going to read it again for the note takers. Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, is the truth, and Christians are called to know him. One of my very favorite Bible stories is from 2 Kings chapter 6. You see, Israel, this time, is in continual conflict with their neighbor to the north, Syria. The Syrian king had discovered that all of his plans were being secretly revealed to Elisha by God. Elisha, being the prophet in Israel, was sharing those secrets with his king, and so Israel again and again was one step ahead of their enemies. So the king of Syria, he sent his army to track down Elisha and to take him captive. The next day, Elisha's servant goes out and discovers that all around their city is an army with horses and chariots. He turns back to Elisha in a panic and he says, what are we going to do? Elisha's answer is famous. He says, don't be afraid. There are more with us than with them. Then he prays that God would open the young man's eyes, and as he sees the reality around him, the mountain is full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I believe we have a picture Could you imagine a moment of, of utter fear as you are surrounded and outnumbered, and then this prophet, who's not sweating a bit, tells you, don't be afraid, there's more with us than there are with them. And your first thought is, he's finally lost his mind. He's finally gone crazy. But then Elisha prays, and God pulls back the veil, and this young man's eyes are opened to the spiritual realm, and he's able to see the army of heaven surrounding them. 
and there is no reason to be afraid. After that happens in the story, as you can imagine, things do not go as expected. Now let's fast forward to the first century, almost a thousand years later. The Apostle John is a pastor. We know from church history that he'd been arrested for preaching in Jesus' name and the Romans, under the emperor Domitian, had tried to kill him with poison. But it hadn't taken. And so they made a spectacle. They tried to, to have people come and watch him be burned in boiling tar. So they dipped him in. He came out praising God. They dipped him again. He came out again, the tar refusing to stick to him. And then, I imagine, in frustration, they exile him to the island of Patmos, about 200 miles away from where he was preaching. I'm sure they felt that if they could just get him so far away, he could no longer be used by God to bless the church. As we know, that didn't work out. God had other plans. And while John was on Patmos, God pulled back the curtain to the spiritual world and showed him visions of the present and the future that John would write down in the book of Revelation. And then sometime later, John was released. He went back to Ephesus and he pastored there with Timothy, the Apostle Paul's protege. And while he was there, he became a spiritual leader to the churches in the region, and he wrote these three letters to help them, to pastor them through difficult times, when several forces were trying to pull them away from the truth. Specifically, in our passage today, John says that the church is being confronted by false prophets. False prophets. You see, the trouble with false prophets is that you cannot tell them apart from real ones at a first glance. They don't look any different than real prophets. They say that they're believers, they seem reasonable, and they claim to have a word from God. Would you really feel comfortable ignoring them? The problem is that we know that not everyone who claims to be a prophet truly is one. And at this time, there were so many competing beliefs about Jesus, and so many things lined up against the church, that we can understand in the face of these false prophets that John reader, John's readers would feel a little bit like Elisha's servant as they looked around at all the forces working to pull them away from the truth. Specifically, there were two major early threats to the Christian view of Jesus that the early church had to deal with right away. I'm going to be a little bit of a history nerd here for a minute. You don't have to remember these terms. One of them was called the Ebionites. Now, the Ebionites, they believed that Jesus was born as a normal human being. That God used him as the Messiah, but that he was fully and only human. Another group called the Docetists, that's fun, right, the Docetists, they believed that Jesus was only divine, 
that there was no flesh to him at all, that his human body was only an illusion. Now, both of these groups, they believed that spiritual things and physical things could not come together. They could not mix. They were separate. And especially when it came to God, they did not believe that he could ever be unified with flesh. And you see, that is a problem because our belief is that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. God the Son taking on flesh. And these other beliefs, they lead to some problems. Both of them make salvation impossible because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Jesus was a sin offering and God condemned sin in his flesh. This is only possible if Jesus is both God and fully human. Without the incarnation, without Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made flesh, Salvation is impossible. But there are problems even beyond that. You see, if we, if we have this idea that Jesus couldn't have had flesh because the spiritual things are the only things that matter, they're the only good things, then what we end up having is a hollowed-out gospel. And we would miss just a tremendous amount of the things God wants us to know and care about. In fact, at the very beginning of Scripture, we see God's command for us to rule over and tend to the earth. God does not consider physical things unimportant. And we see again and again through the ministry of Jesus, his desire to meet physical needs as they come up, as he's feeding people who are hungry and healing people who are sick. We cannot think that only spiritual things matter. On the other hand, if we lean too far the other way and if we overemphasize the humanity of Jesus, talking about him almost as though he was absolutely no different than you and I, then we strip the gospel of its eternal significance and we end up with something that just tells us to be good. If all we worry about is this world, if all we worry about is the flesh, then we'll, we'll have all these rules about how to be nice and kind, and we will miss out on eternity. We'll lose track of heaven. And we'll lose track of the idea of the Holy Spirit coming inside of us and changing us. You see, these problems, these perspectives, the, the overemphasis on the spirit and the overemphasis on the flesh, they're not just first century problems. They are still very present today. And we are tempted and we are pulled by them in many different ways. And the thing of it is, these pulls, these temptations, they are so much more sinister than we might think because we often don't even realize when we're struggling with them. Should we care about politics? Or is that just a this world problem? Is it important for us to, to feed the hungry 
Or should we only care about their spiritual needs? Is our job only to evangelize? Is our interest in people only about whether or not they've said yes to Jesus? After we get someone to accept him, are we done? Is it over? Is the Christianity of them complete? You see, these things, they still pop up and we still have to wrestle because we will find ourselves naturally being pulled toward one or the other. Some of us in one direction and others in the other. These are the struggles that the world gives us. And let me be clear here. I I don't mean the world is in the physical place we live. I mean it like John does. The parts of the world that are against the Lord. The world isn't the only force that pulls on us in this way. John speaks in our passage here about spirits. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I'm always surprised when I encounter people who do not believe that spirits are real. They they will believe in God, but they don't believe in angels or demons or the evil one. I don't mean that they they don't believe that everything is about them. They, They don't believe that they exist at all. They read the stories of demon possession in the New Testament as only being about mental illness. They they think that the rest of it is a superstition. And that's so strange to me, because if you can accept that there is a God who holds creation together moment by moment, I cannot imagine why we would find it hard to believe that there are such things as angels or demons or an evil one. There is a passage, a passage, a part of of one of the books that was most impactful on me as I was going through kind of my initial phase of discipleship in the Christian faith. It's called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's this letter, or this series of letters, written from a demon to his nephew who is tempting a human being. It's fictional, obviously, in case you were worried. But it it gives this incredible perspective on spiritual warfare, on the effects and temptations that the spirits around us can have on us. There's a passage I want to read right here at the beginning. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. This is C.S. Lewis talking before before the, the story goes and he's speaking as the demon. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, it's important that we acknowledge, as the Apostle John tells us here, that spirits are real. Also, it's important that we do not fall into the trap of thinking that everything is about them. This, by the way, is an extra copy of this book, and if you would read it, you are welcome to it if you get to me first. The goal of demons, of of the agents of the evil one, is to sow discord, division between us and the Lord. Their goal is to sow division between us and the Lord. 
And they accomplished this by sowing smaller divisions between us and each other. I imagine if you can get a church arguing about what kind of music they should have on Sunday morning, that's a real way that the the demons love to see a church divide. Or between us as individuals and the church, if I can get upset enough about that thing the preacher said on Sunday morning, the evil one delights in the way that division comes and pulls me apart from the church I belong to. Or even between us and ourselves. As I think about the parts of me that do not honor the Lord, that I'm called to resist, to fight, to not let rule me, if I can just start to think that actually that part of me is not that big of a deal. God's not too worried about it. What I really need to do is is to have a good Sunday morning presence, to be one person on Sunday and another person the rest of the week. If I can divide into two people that way, the evil one delights in that as well. And this bit, us against ourselves, is important. Our own fallenness is the third major opponent or force that tries to pull us away from the truth. The world pulls, the spirits pull, and the parts of us that do not belong to Jesus pull as well. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you have flaws. If that's news to you, ask a family member. I'm sure they will enumerate them. But it's painful to look at them when they affect our relationship with the Lord. It's painful to dwell on the parts of ourselves that will not follow him. Or the parts of ourselves that while we could follow him in obedience 23 hours and 59 minutes a day, it takes so little time for a temptation to take root and lead us to sin. And shame comes in and makes us feel unworthy to come into his presence. Or perhaps your flaw is that you think you can do no wrong. I've met people like that before. Or maybe the opposite. Perhaps the flaw that you struggle with most, the sin that you struggle with most, is thinking that you can do no right. God loves everyone, but he couldn't possibly love you. Both of those are pride in different ways. But what we are called to do is to navigate these two parts of ourselves that pull apart And to hold on to the truth that we are one person, a child of God, and he is making us new. We're forgiven. We're adopted. We have his Holy Spirit and we are being made new. And then there's these two things that we have to hold on to, to not let ourselves fall in one direction or the other. I talked about these a few weeks ago. Sometimes we can overdo the spiritual side. That may sound strange, but let me explain. Holiness. The idea of purity before God being the the only thing 
that matters is an easy trap to fall into. I read my Bible, I find command after command and rule after rule and law after law. And of course, I'm called to obey them. And so I can fall into the trap of thinking that the real Christians are the ones who follow all the rules. Or I can fall too far towards the flesh side and think that compassion is the only thing that matters. And so it does not matter what a person does or what I do. The thing that Jesus wants for me is always and only compassion. But see, as Christians, we're called to hold on to both, to seek after purity and to always grow in compassion. And this is so difficult. We all do better with one than the other. But John says in verse 4, You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome all these things trying to pull you away from him, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. When I was um, just becoming a Christian, and I was in Sunday school one day, I remember when our teacher was talking to us about the incredible truth of the Holy Spirit being within us. He was talking about how when we accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into us, and just how incredible a thing that is. And then he said, if you could stand in front of a mirror that showed you the truth of the spiritual realm, you'd never be able to look away because you'd look in the mirror and see the Holy Spirit. God is in you. The one who's in you is greater than anything that comes against you. That's an amazing and powerful truth. And John tells us that we have everything we need because we have him to overcome these forces that want to sow division in the world and in our church and in our own hearts. And he tells us that the secret to discerning truth from lies, to fighting against the forces that want to pull us away, the secret is Jesus Christ. John tells us to test the spirits, to test the word of people claiming to be prophets, and he tells us that the test is very simple. Do they line up with Jesus? Because in Jesus Christ, the truth has become a person. You see, for Christians, knowing the truth is not like knowing facts. It's not like knowing that two plus two equals four. Knowing the truth is about knowing Jesus, knowing him, not knowing about him, not just knowing a set of facts about him. The devil knows more facts about Jesus than we ever will, but that's not what knowing him Means We know the truth as a relationship with Jesus. And we're called to know him well. So that when someone or something, be it the world or an evil spirit or the fallenness of our own heart, tries to sow division by convincing us of a lie, we can recognize it for what it is. Because the desire of the Holy Spirit is to bring unity to the body of Christ. 
Unity with God, unity with one another, and unity with our own selves as we grow to become more like him. So when we're uncertain, when something is pulling at us and we're not sure what's true, first and foremost, we come to the Bible and we ask, does this line up with Scripture? Is this, can I reconcile this with Jesus? It's not about reading the Bible to learn facts, right? I don't, I don't just read Scripture to learn a list of facts. There's so much in here. If I came to the Bible with that attitude, I'd feel like I had to read for a lifetime to even begin. And maybe you've felt that before. It's intimidating to start because there's just so much, and it's going to be so long before I know it all, before it all makes sense to me. But that's not what reading the Bible is about. Of course, knowing the facts is good. Read, learn, study, become more knowledgeable. That's very good. But we're called to read the Bible, to engage with Scripture, to find the Lord speaking to us there because He will use it by the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. We are changed, grown, stretched, made to be more like our Lord as we encounter Him in Scripture. Don't feel like this book is intimidating. You can never learn it all. Feel like the Lord is here ready to meet with you. This is the meeting place where He shared the messages He has for you and wants you to hear from Him. It's a place where you come and are changed and stretched and grow. It's okay if you don't understand everything you read because the Spirit is active. You're being changed. So when we're uncertain of the truth, we, we try to square it with what we know of Jesus from the Word. And more, we come to the body of Christ. And we try to listen to the Holy Spirit's guidance together. It's so important to not just try to do this whole process of figuring out truth from falsity on your own. There's story after story through the church's history of when this has gone bad. One of the most pointed of them, of them for me that, that always comes to mind is a man named Melchior Hoffman. He was one of the Anabaptists in the Reformation before Menno Simons. He was a, a very powerful preacher a strong leader, thousands of people came to Christ because of his preaching. And he started to believe a little bit too much in his own legend. And he, he was told at one of his churches where he was preaching by a woman who said she was a prophet that he was supposed to go and allow himself to be arrested. He'd spend one year in jail and then Jesus would return. Melchior Hoffman did not find it necessary to... to check with anyone. He was told he was going to be the new Elijah when Jesus came back, sprung from prison and leading God's people. And that sounded so right to him, so good to him, that he went and allowed himself to be arrested. He died in prison ten years later. The tragedy of that, it hits me when I read his story, I read some of his preaching, the power, the way the spirit was active, and then he was deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived. 
check, speak with, listen to the body of Christ around you and allow the Holy Spirit to speak through them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to disagree on things. We could paint this in such a way that it seems like if we just talk about everything, we're all going to believe all the same things. If that was true, all of the church globally would have the same beliefs, right? And do we? Mostly, we do. There's a few things that we disagree on, but the the majors, the, the primary parts, the essentials, we do agree on. But we as individuals, we come to our local body and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us. Let's take an example of what does it look like for us to cling to Jesus as the truth. I tried to think of something that's not a real big issue right now, that's been sensitive in the past, to kind of use as an example of a way for us to resist the pull of the world the lies of the evil one, and even those parts of ourselves that are not in line with Jesus. How do you decide how to dress on Sunday morning? I'm curious, think about that for a moment. How do you decide how you're going to dress on Sunday morning? I talked about those two parts that can pull us, right? The the part of us that leans more toward holiness, the The spiritual side, the importance only of spiritual things says, dress up. Right? You're going to go before God, the creator of the universe. You're going to go before your king and your savior. You should dress in your Sunday best. I imagine that some of you kind of go through that process on Sunday morning as you prepare for worship. I'm not sure how many of you that are watching from home went through that process. Perhaps you're in your pajamas, but but I think you know what I'm talking about. And we've seen churches that can be led down this path where you're doing something wrong if you don't do it this way. What does the other side kind of draw us to? Dress comfortably. We don't want to make anyone think we're better than we are. So, so let's dress like it's just any other day and not pretend to be something we're not. Right? We have both of these poles. In our church, many of us have both of these poles within us. And if we let one sound like this is the way it should be, we're going to become judgmental. We're going to divide relationships, divide a church, even struggle within ourselves, feeling like we're doing something wrong. What do we do? How do you hold on to both? We recognize that both can be good and that the enemy wants us to think less of each other over whatever the issue is, be it how we dress on Sunday morning, be it whether we wear masks when we go to the store, whatever it is. The enemy wants us to think less of each other because of it. And so we speak with the church. We hear from one another. And usually we come to decide not to judge others for choosing differently than we do. And perhaps we even go one step further. Deciding to be like Jesus, we we decide to dress in a way that shows our love for the people around us and for the Lord, whatever that may be. To make others comfortable, 
to make them not feel judged? What if we make those around us the focus of these choices? You see, when we think that way, when we think about putting others before ourselves, what tends to happen is the lies from the world get quieter because the spirit moves through those kinds of decisions. And the parts of ourselves that are divided kind of get sewn back together because something feels like it's clicking in place. We put others before ourselves and we say, I'm going to dress in a way that makes others feel comfortable and I'm not going to judge those that do differently. I'm going I'm to wear a mask because it makes people around me feel comfortable, but I'm not going to judge others who do differently. I'm going to use language that makes the people around me feel comfortable, but if someone uses language differently, words I'm not comfortable with, I'm not going to judge them for being different than me. That's what love looks like. When you're acting with Christian love, that's a good sign that you're close to the truth because that's what Jesus does. Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, is the truth. And Christians are called to know Him. We're called to go to Him when the world pulls us. To cling to Him when the enemy lies to us. And to trust Him when our own hearts deceive us. We do that through prayer. We do that through the word. We do that through listening to the body. We remember that he is the truth and that we are called to know him. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, Lord, are the truth and that you share that with us. You call us to come to you and to learn. Not a set of facts about you, but to know the truth. To know you. And Lord, you change us when we do. You use us, Lord, to show the truth of you to those around us. To love them like you do. Lord, that's what we ask for today. Help us to know you more. To have a closer walk with you. And use us, Lord, to show your love and goodness your holiness and mercy to those around us. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.